welcome to Tech Law Talks. I am Anthony Diana, a member of Reed Smith's Tech and Data Group. In each episode of this podcast, we will discuss cutting edge issues on technology, data, and the law. We will provide practical observations on a wide variety of technology and data topics to give you quick and actionable tips to address the issues you are dealing with every day. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Tech Law Talks. My name is Soham Panchmir, and I sit in Reed Smith's Dubai office working on all things crypto, Web3, Gamify, and everything in between. We talk about fun things like regulations, disputes, more regulations, commercial realities, and a little bit more about regulations. And I'm joined today by my esteemed mentor, Hagen Rook, sitting in the Singapore office at Reed Smith, who knows everything I do, just, you know, times infinity. And we're also joined today by someone extremely important and special, someone we've been working with for some time and who is just a ray of sunshine whenever you speak to her, the incomparable Victoria Wells, GC of Illuvium Dow. Victoria, thank you so much for joining us. What a welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me, Soham and Hagen. And may I just say, you make me sound very grey-haired and boring by comparison. That's entirely <laughs> the intention. I want everyone to think of me as the young, trendy one, and you as sort of like the guy who's wagging his finger in the background, just being like, oh no, he's at it again. I, I very much see myself as Dennis the Menace. That's the way people perceive it. Anyway, we can divert the limelight to, to Victoria, who is, uh, as you say, uh, <laughs> a much sunnier disposition. <laughs> so, Victoria, please tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do, how you joined Alluvium, and what's Alluvium all about? Sure. So I'm Chief Legal Officer for Alluvium, which is a AAA um, game production studio. It's DAO organized, which is a really important element when you think about um, how games are produced. And we are in the throes of producing, hopefully, a life-changing um, universe of games um, that leverage blockchain technology and really push the needle on GameFi, which, as you both probably know, <laughs> is still in its infancy. And so, you know, is much like the, the the upstart younger brother of like some far more interesting and complex elements of Web three that have established themselves, and now also are followed by, um, you know, the necessities of being regulated and all of the complexity that follows that. So I, I like to think of GameFi as the, the scrappy younger brother um, to some more sophisticated um, Web3 tooling, and um, uh, in particular in the realm of DeFi. And yeah, that's Alluvium in a nutshell. I'm a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for over a decade, which is absolutely terrifying to think about. And like everybody in Web3, I came from somewhere else. Um, so I was lucky, and we actually share this in common, so him. Um, we both came from an international arbitration background, which I think kind of lends its, itself quite nicely to applying our, our um, conglomerate of um, expertise and knowledge into a space. We sort of we look at problems from the perspective of complex frameworks of, of law, how they interact with one another, 
and then ultimately some of the more edge of the knife elements of um, legal gameplay, if we want to use that word there. Um, so the enforceability paradigm is where, where we sort of tend to look at things from, um, which definitely lends itself to um, working in crypto, which is, you know, all about the knife's edge. <laughs> It's all about the knife's edge. Um, to be a lawyer in this space, you need to be armed with a fairly um, a healthy degree of skepticism, a, a great comfort with complexity and uncertainty, and um, most of all, a, a client that is willing to explore their outermost reaches of um, what currently exists from a legal perspective. Um, and always led by that desire to work within the paradigm or work within the paradigm if it did actually um, exist and how to be a good good player. Yeah, and uh, I love uh, I love the, the allusion to international arbitration because it's kind of exciting and worrying to me how many of the conversations I have either start or end with like, look, there is a risk. From my perspective, the enforcement is pretty low, but that doesn't eliminate the risk. And uh, then you just watch the mental gymnastics that occur from the project side, trying to decide if it's worth the risk. Oh my goodness. Well, I, I think the other side of it is when you come from that paradigm, and also should probably reference um, some of my other experience. My other experience is in tech innovation. So whether that's med tech um, or red tech, you sort of, you tend to look at things of how do we build and then how do we build into a framework that might not yet be there. There's a very old, wonderful saying that um, uh, the law limps behind innovation at 50 paces. It's a piece of obiter. I can't remember what um, judgment it was in, but um, it's always stuck with me through, through thin and thin. We're on the knife edge of making things and making wonderful things. And when you do that, um, you can't expect for the existing frameworks that are there to accommodate your novel use cases. And sometimes you need something that's totally purpose built for you. And that inevitably takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of political will. And that's also one of the reasons why um, we find ourselves in, in the UAE in a great um, paradigm where laws can be made and can be amended um, with a degree of flexibility that does not necessarily benefit our counterparts in other parts of the world. Yeah, or in other words, you could wake up in the morning and find the laws changed and you're just like, right, okay, well, <laughs> let's get on with it. <laughs> let's, let's deal with that. <laughs> that is pretty much the case in the UAE, right? You guys have a new framework every other week. It's difficult to keep up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, oh. I'm always bombarding Hagen with information about like, oh, this came out and he's just like, great, another one. Well, yeah. okay, yeah. There is, there's a benefit and a curse to it. So you might wake up one day and, you know, for example, the corporate tax laws have changed, um, which will, <laughs> you know, elicit a degree of panic from almost everybody. But on the other side, we have the world's first dedicated um, virtual asset regulator, which is further than most um, regions have gotten so far in terms of mm -hmm. developing policy, creating laws, um, setting up regulators. And naturally, we have other countries and trade um, blocks sort of in that process of that policy to law uh, life cycle process. So most notably um, the EU. Um, but we are really at ground zero for what it looks like for um, a regulator to create a set of laws and in our case some rule books regulate my activity and welcome the crypto community, the well-behaved crypto community into the jurisdiction. So it's pretty exciting stuff. We get to do really cool stuff um, day to day. Quick question on that, because a, a few weeks ago, uh, Vic, we were sitting sort of uh, here in Singapore and chatting about token 2049. 
Um, and so you're no stranger to, to other jurisdictions. And as, as far as I can tell, you're extremely familiar with, uh, you know, this part of the world, Southeast Asia. What was it that, that drew Illuvium and, and you specifically to the UAE and, and to Dubai? Because, I mean, you must have recognized a fair while ago that, you know, that part of the world is, you know, very conducive to, to, to what you do and probably offers a, a favorable environment. And that would have preceded, you know, a lot of the more recent initiatives where, lo and behold, you know, uh, some of the regulators have been looking at this more closely in the UAE and are really now very, very actively trying to create an environment that, you know, GameFi and sort of other blockchain-based solutions in the gaming space can thrive in. So what was it that kind of drew you over there and, and made you decide that you wanted to be there rather than elsewhere? Oh, Hagen, with the good questions. Okay, I'm going to presage my response by first explaining that Illumium is a DAO. A DAO is a little different to a, a normal company structure. So a DAO is uh, populated by members. Members uh, raise proposals. Those proposals go to our council. Our council members consider those proposals and then vote on whether to implement them. So we do things um, through this uh, consensus model. So it makes it a little different how uh, how we make decisions, whereas in a normal company, um, decisions are usually taken by a board of directors and then implemented by um, a, managing, a management team. We have arrived at the decision of where to look at collectively as a DAO, where to domicile our project. We haven't uh, landed on definitively Dubai or the UAE as a final destination, but as a DAO, it's really important to think about where you are actually going to domicile, for example, some of your service companies so that you can service your DAO appropriately. Zooming out a little bit, uh, DAOs usually look at different jurisdictions where they can have legal personality or a structure that somewhat fits their operations. So the usual suspects here are a Cayman Foundation and a BVI service code. Um, you also have uh, legislative frameworks that accommodate DAOs. Um, you have a couple in the United States, including Wyoming. Is Marshall Islands still on the list? Yeah, Marshall Islands is definitely on the list, but um, it has, you know, uh, a degree, there's some consternation around the suitability for Marshall Islands for projects that also involve vast activities. And then there are other few players. Uh, for example, ADGM is now also looking at implementing um, a yep. DLT foundation framework. So you have these very pocketed, tiny little options for DAOs. And, you know, in terms of a structuring paradigm, there's very a very small degree of maneuverability. Now let's talk about vast licensing and the activities um, that you, the uh, uh, Alluvium DAO and then other VAFs perform and where they can be licensed. For the time being, the US is a no-go and I don't really need to go into that for our listening community. I'm sure they're across that already. Um, Singapore is... Um, yeah, Singapore yeah, is... I just devastated that the US <laughs> is a no-go, just heartbroken. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> we will uh, we'll, uh, have the collective mourning ce uh, ceremony after this podcast, I'm sure. Let's talk about Singapore. Singapore is a great option. A lot of Australian projects have looked to Singapore for the regulatory framework whilst Australia considers what's appropriate for Australia. And, you know, I can be critical about that, but I'm not. I'm going to withhold my criticism because the Treasury has just released a second consultation paper and proposed framework, which is fantastic for Australia. Well done. But this is... We're talking um, 
crypto years. We're on a crypto time frame. So one year in crypto is like dog years. It times it by seven in terms of opportunity, lost opportunity, um, and where you can um, take your project and advance it. It's highly competitive and we need regulatory environments that are also highly competitive or able to respond to, you know, the needs of the building community. So flexible frameworks or a regulator that is responsive, the ability to engage with your regulator about what might be needed, the uh, paradigm in which you can actually amend regulation at pace. But these are really important things. So when we looked at Dubai, when we looked at the fact that, uh, you know, uh, the world's first purpose-built regulator is uh, being established here, you know, it ticked a lot of boxes for us in terms of um, a friendly or responsive regulator, which um, can be contrasted against, say, the U.S., and some might say Australia at the, at the time when we were looking at this, who are also adopting a regulation by enforcement approach. Dubai and VARA have the ability to amend their laws as and when they're being made, um, which is really important because GameFi sits in this really interesting space. We have assets. Those assets are used in game, but they're not for a specific and sole financial purpose. And so if you peel back the concept of like why you uh, create laws for something, you come into the policy zone. And when you're thinking about policy, you're thinking about, okay, well, is it the same activity? Does it deserve to be, you know, regulated the same way? And are the same outcomes applied for other like activities? And so when you look at GameFi, it's not just a financial purpose. People spend time in games and they spend time in games because they're immersive environments. It's a form of entertainment and fundamentally it's fun. It captivates you. If you create a game and you're simply earning, that's not fun. That's grind. People don't get into a game to grind. Now, you could say that play to earn was the first iteration of GameFi and incorporated some really clever game dynamics and logic and a complex economy, which incentivized people to play. And at that point in time, when, uh, you know, much of the world was locked down during COVID, you know, entire uh, economic ecosystems were completely disrupted. It became safe. It became profitable to play, uh, for example, Axie Infinity, which is the shining example of play to earn. Now, we're too, we're too soon in the story of GameFi to make a call on the balance and use of play to win or, or pay mechanics inside games. And we have to be extremely careful not to throttle or um, kill GameFi before it has, has in fact arrived. Play to win feels like, um, in many respects, the first iteration, but you can play and earn. And so until we have the ability to explore the nuance of um, the use of digital assets in this way, it's way too early to start implementing the, the regulatory framework around it. And I'll take you back to that quote the law limps behind innovation at 50 paces. We're not even one or two paces out. So everybody just calm down, wait, and trust that we're going to build something really good and responsibly. Now, on that point, though, isn't half of the challenge the fact that you're not subject to only one law if you have a, a platform that is really uh, essentially intended to be global, right? And just to talk about some of the regulatory considerations here, because I know you guys are litigators, but, you know, I like my regulation. There are kind of two things that I always think about when I think about uh, GameFi. So one is obviously everything to do with the use of tokens and the 
financial aspect, as you say, there can be an element of being able to earn tokens. So uh, there are tokenomics. And in a sense, you're kind of inputting something into the platform, you receive something back. Is that an investment of some sort? Or are you earning passive returns? That's sort of the, the usual distinction that we have to draw. And then, you know, similarly, you've also got the the gambling law overlay or the gaming law overlay, which is you know, are you effectively allowing users or, or, or players to win prizes in a way that resembles a lottery? Or is there some other form of gaming or waging? And again, it, it typically turns on whether the player is actually inputting some form of skill and then earning a reward based on that skill, or whether the earning of the reward is actually a prize, and that's a pure game of chance. So actually, I find that the, the gaming and the, the I guess the investment regulatory considerations are kind of similar. Um, but how do you navigate all of that for a platform that is looking to roll out in, you know, several dozen jurisdictions or basically globally where, you know, the, the regulatory frameworks are different in each place? Well, another fantastic question. Um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've hit your, you've hit on something that is at the core of practicing in this space, and I think it's something that we can all share. You are bombarded by a degree of complexity in your day to day work as a gamefi lawyer or as a as a lawyer in any form of um, Web three activity. You are bombarded by bombarded by complexity from every direction. So you could really um, boil it down to three categories of law and um, legal systems that affect your operations um so for for us dow law is really important and i touched on that earlier the fact that there's very few jurisdictions that have the legal frameworks that allow you to actually build on top of them um, we're very um familiar with the concept of composability and building blocks um in web3 and in particular in DeFi, and the importance of having um these key uh primaries that you build on law is a key primary building block it's a necessity you can't um deploy capital you can't hire talent, um, you can't scale until you have a framework, a bedrock upon which you can build. And so without recognition of what a DAO is and solving some of the complexities around DAOs, like, uh, for example, uh, corporate tax, how do you allocate corporate tax and, you know, the rightful um, amount of tax that a DAO might pay based on where its um, central management and control might be in the world? That That is something that we haven't solved, but it's something that should rightfully be addressed when we're thinking about these decentralised um, autonomous organisations that exist across different legal legal systems and the taxes that are a part of that legal system that allow you to access those resources. So that's DAOs. Now we, let's look at tokens and, and investment and financial um, uh, services and product laws. Um, again, they're, they're relatively the same across different jurisdictions. The concept that you can t- you need to protect a consumer and provide stability to that financial um, system and allow people to participate in a way that um, you know builds for those two um, important policy um, outcomes. Uh, you have variability in how financial services laws are implemented, how they're created, what they do and do not consider financial products. And uh, that is just a, a miasma of complexity. 
ultimately That's usually where Hagen comes in. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've got your work cut out for you and you will never be without work, Hagen. But the um, <laughs> the fantastic thing is like where we are dynamic, young, relatively small companies compared to say um, the shells of and the apples of of the world. We don't have armies of lawyers and armies of compliance teams. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody on staff that you need to build and respond to uh, the challenges of working across many, many, many jurisdictions. So we have to build um, leanly. We have to build with agility. Uh, we have to be across these different um, legal paradigms. And we have to be aware of also where our customers are coming from. Yes, they come from everywhere. But also what are the jurisdictions um, that are turning on crypto-specific laws what are the jurisdictions that are emphasizing a particular agenda that might be dangerous or uh, difficult for us to deal with? So, for example, regulation by enforcement um, paradigms are really um, dangerous and um, discouraging to our, our practices and to innovation in general. So, you know, how do we make sure that we can build in, you know, the right type of tools? Um, do we have a, a correct approach? Have we prioritized a particular jurisdiction in our approach to dealing with, you know, um, the financial services laws or whatever laws that we're looking at? I want to land on gaming laws now because I think that that's um, one of my favorite spaces or thematics. So let's talk about gambling. Gambling has, you know, three common attributes. You have consideration, you have um, risk, and then you have some form of reward for the deployment of that consideration, knowing that there's risk and then the potential of that payoff. On that very broad concept of uh, gambling, so many things can be captured by it. So we really need to tighten down what gambling is and what gambling is specifically within the gaming space, within the esports and gaming space. This is super, super important. And there's a reason why. Gaming is now of cultural and economic significance in a way that we would never have considered two or even three generations ago. An example of its um, economic significance can be taken right out of our region and the example of Saudi. It now has a gaming strategy and it intends to be the centre of gaming by 2030. There were some fantastic pieces of... I've got some facts for you. Let me get my facts. What do we have? So we have... 717 games, Web3 games, were launched in 2022. In this specific region, there's a $38 billion fund set aside for gaming. Saudi's PIF, which is a sovereign wealth fund, um, has dedicated that incredible amount to making um, uh, Saudi Arabia the centre, the epicentre for gaming. They acquired uh, Scopely for just under five billion and that's through savvy gaming group this is surgery um and i think that was last year and they made it known last year that they were the largest external stakeholder of nintendo outside of the company and that was at, that's an 8.3 percent they're just some some stats to support more well, stats can support anything but some stats to support um the fact that gaming is you know of huge economic import not just in this region but globally and we saw with um, Axie Infinity, just how profoundly life-changing it was and profoundly um, impactful it was to individuals but also to economies um, during COVID. So my question then is zeroing in a little bit around what you've been going through with Illuvium here in Dubai. Uh, we've been holding hands and sort of walking through that, that fire together. Now, 
as someone who spends a lot of time poring over the VAR regulations, I say this as I'm staring at that fat book, it's sitting on my desk right now, it's so tabbed up, I need a new copy. In my mind, the way the regs are set up, the way they've been designed, their purpose is for, I mean, it's a bit odd to say it, but traditional crypto companies, right? We're talking about the exchanges. We're to, yeah, I can see Hagen smiling at traditional and crypto being used synonymously. But we're talking about exchanges and broker dealers, OTC desks, uh, lender borrower protocols uh, and, and DeFi that have centralization components. It's a bit odd to, and certainly the struggle we've been having is these extremely what seem like onerous requirements being applied to a gamify company that's just you know selling the swords of nightmares and and the shield of truth and honesty for playable characters within a gaming ecosystem where people are meant to just have fun suddenly we have to have all these conversations and you know couple that up with all the dao considerations in that the company rulebook for vara has all these serious requirements for board of directors and you know a traditional centralized company setup so in your experience, as we're going through this process, what have been the things that you've struggled with and what is the hope that you are hoping to see moving forward? Okay, um, well, I'm gonna take the uh, the shield of truth and honesty. I think that uh, we need to implement that in a regulatory form so that uh, <laughs> we can go ahead, go forth and build and present our shield of truth and honesty when we're interacting with our regulator. Okay, in all seriousness, Okay. I want to just cover what Web3, like what are the key elements of GameFi? So you have financialization. You have the ability to earn or create value through gameplay. Um, and that's usually um, in the form of NFTs uh, and the creation of game assets that are then able to be transferred across games, outside of games and traded for value or traded up for, you know, other NFTs that are, you know, significant to your journey within your game. Uh, you have composability. So you have the ability for gamers to adapt um, and evolve a game um, in a way that is intended to be possible by your game developers. So Web2 had the ability for mods and um, for other forms of hacked gameplay, mm -hmm. um, which showed, you know, the degree of engagement that, um, you know, games make possible and the desire for gamers to have something else. Um, so composability, it's about taking the fundamentals of Web3 construction or architecture. So taking um, smart contracts, um, taking protocols, putting them together in novel ways and producing these interesting outcomes. And I think that GameFi is, you know, an interesting outcome of the application of DeFi and Web2 gaming. Um, I would say also probably that. the only successful, really successful use <laughs> case to come out of it yet. And you can you can even take composability and you can zero in on a game environment. So in the uh, Alluvium example, we have a so you thought you think about sinks and faucets. So we have arena, we have overworld, and we have zero. Zero is a faucet. Uh, you have a land NFT. You purchase that. You farm the land. You create fuel, which is an in-game currency. That currency is then utilized in Overworld, where you can travel and you can um, create new uh, game assets, new NFTs that um, you progress your gameplay. And then in Arena, you battle your alluvials, which are the the keystone um, uh, game asset of the um, the alluvium ecosystem. And that's sort of like in a nutshell um, our gameplay. 
that the composability, the ability for you to use your NFTs or use your game assets um, within and across our titles, it could also be considered composability. I also want to land on consensus. This is where our DAO comes in. So I think it's probably it's my favorite element of what the promise of GameFi. And it's the fact that you have as a, as a gamer, as a member of a community, all these different touch points and abilities to influence the game environment, the game economy, um, the assets that, or the, the characters that are in there um, to develop and evolve the narrative behind the game um, to propose uh, different applications of the, of the intellectual property that is created by the DAO and, and by, by everybody um, collectively. I think that that's wonderful. Vitalik Buterin uh, bemoaned the issues of centralized game um, studio production when he, and this is like one of the underlying um, purposes um, that drove his innovation um, and eventual creation of Ethereum. So he had the experience um, in World of Warcraft of having one of his assets, or I think it was his character, nerfed. And I can, I'll give you a link to that, um, but that's sort of, this is sort of at the core of why GameFi is so important. It allows for true participation in the creation of something that you clearly derive value in because you um, spend a lot of your time and um, your resources in being able to pursue that activity. So taking that, now let's look at slapping a, a regulatory wrapper around this and making it a safe environment. Well, let's say our, our regulators have their work cut out for them. They need to be able to distinguish between virtual assets and their usages that is purely financial in the form of some of these more, quote unquote, traditional VASPs. GameFi is still a a relatively new um, outcome of blockchain representation of assets. And until we have the ability to explore what consensus models actually look like, until we have the ability to fully experiment with consensus and methods of building that enable us to embrace consensus, and until we have really like teased out the financialization aspect and play to win, play to earn mechanics, looking at, you know, play and win, until we have really like explored that, then we're not, I don't think we've arrived at a place where you can say, okay, this is what GameFi is, this is what GameFi isn't. And we're going to, you know, produce rules around how these things can operate. At the core, you regulate something based on the risk that it presents to a community and uh, consumers. It is very difficult for me to look at, say, two 10-year-olds from different parts of the world trading skins or trading NFTs um, that represent some assets in gameplay for, you know, 5 and $10 and then lump it in with um, the trade of, you know, stables or the purchase of even of NFTs that are, um, you know, worth 10s and 20s of ETH. Um, these are two very, very different activities. And one, we have to look at the value. Two, we need to look at the the individuals behind those activities. And three, we need to look at the nature of those transactions before we've established an understanding of what the risk profile is. The traditional frameworks are a fantastic first start and I applaud them, um, but they don't fit and and don't account for the nuance that GameFi presents um, and therefore more consideration around how a framework might produce a safe an entrusted game environment uh, needs to happen. So, yeah, that's my position. Just to very opportunistically pick up on something you said, (laughs) actually a few themes that you brought up. I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on this. The whole distinction between Web 2 and Web 3. Now, in a lot of the, I guess, restructurings that we've looked at or even new projects that we're helping, there is this theme of 
wanting to make Web3 available to the user base, to the, the player community, so that they can do all of the cool stuff that you've just described around you know, using in-game assets, possibly even being involved in governance of the, the platform, etc. But in a sense, they also want the ease of access that Web2 offers because uh, in a sense, it's easier if you can just use your credit card or make a bank transfer to buy in-game assets as opposed to having to you know, credit your MetaMask with ETH and then transfer the ETH. And all of those things are, I guess, tech elements that can create a bit of friction and ultimately attrition. How do you see that? Do you see a bit of a, a trend towards a Web2 user experience as a result? You raise something super important, which is how do you compare the Web3 game experience um, to the Web2 game experience? And is do you have the same ease with which you can bring consumers in? The game experience is everything. So being able to design from the perspective of a, a, a customer and making sure that that, um, that onboarding experience is seamless, that you can absorb yourself, immerse yourself in a game environment. That, that initial interaction, that onboarding is absolutely critical and games will live or die completely on how that, um, that process is managed. The Web2 experience, um, because there are no uh, blockchain representation of assets that are there, uh, means that it could potentially, if regulation of Web3 is not handled correctly, it could look very different the Web 2 experience and the Web 3 experience, simply because you might actually have to, for example, KYC your customer before they come into a game environment. My position is that that would be absolutely fatal. You've killed something before it's even gotten off the ground. My other position is, is it really necessary? Is the risk posed by entering a game environment the same as transacting um, on an exchange? Um, it is not. There is a lot more effort and energy that needs to go into exploring the nuance and the difference um, between these environments. But more importantly, um, we need to make sure that Web3 can deliver on the promises of composability and consensus and possibility that it makes possible. The whole reason that Web3 gaming came about because of the severe limitations in Web2 gaming. And the fact that you can have, you know, a, a behemoth centralized entity completely change um, the value of your asset, you know, do away with the value that you've created over time or implement something else that, you know, makes that game no longer desirable for you to play. So we need to let Web3 um, GameFi innovation and experimentation live and be explored before we actually set down to um, regulating it with an iron fist. My hope is that regulators understand that, understand that there is going to be some effort that needs to go into this activity on both sides, on the regulator side to understand um, the risk presented by a game economy, and then on the side of developers and game studios and for us, our game down, our community, our entire community is along for this ride to understand how to create a trusted and safe environment. So, yeah, the, and I think one point that um, tends to suggest that we are heading in a direction where GameFi will be of increasing importance and significance to the gaming community. Uh, Sony filed patents um, a little while ago. I think it was, if not last year, then um, at the end of the year prior. Um, and those have just recently been published. 
and they relate to the um, the creation of a system where pre-existing um, assets from the Sony ecosystem are um, made into NFTs and there's a framework for swapping of those NFTs in and out of um, titles. So we know that um, Web3 is of significance uh, or at least of interest to the Web2 community and that in a short period of time uh, we can expect to be joined by these big companies that already have, you know, a huge head start into this environment. If we were to regulate Web3 game companies in a way that stymied innovation and prevented us from exploring the possibilities of play and earn, not just play to earn, we would lose the promise of um, GameFi if we did that because we would effectively give um, Web2 the head start and all of the capital, all the incentives to continue to build in in this environment. And these Web3 game, these games that are decentralizing their operation, created for the community, by the community, would would fall by the wayside. I just wanted to say that there has been already one incident of, you know, wash trading uh, within a gaming ecosystem uh, with uh, what was reported with Gods Unchained. And in my mind, there is this sort of balance that has to be struck between not killing the innovation, which Vic has so eloquently put forward, but also finding an element of safety to prevent these sorts of events that ultimately drag the entire community down. Because in the interest of getting that crazy trading volume, the the brand is tarnished and now all the gamified companies coming up have to contend with that example being thrown at them whenever they speak to any regulator because now that's become the well this is why it's got to go through the old-fashioned system my hope um, and, and i'd like to round out by by asking hagen and vic about what they hope to see gazing into their crystal ball for the future my hope plain and simple is I want to see uh, VARA and certainly the FSRA and the ADGM, if possible, but mostly VARA, put together um, a more comprehensive either clarification paper or separate rule book, if possible, that specifically addresses Gamify. It might be a wish list item, but you never know. Hagen? Well, agreed, although you're much further along with the development of a GameFi framework, or at least one, if not several, in, in the UAE. So, uh, you know, in Southeast Asia, Singapore in particular, we, we don't have anything of the sort. So our frameworks are very, very agnostic as to what they apply to. I think it would be helpful for, you know, countries in this region. Uh, I know I'm being a little bit sort of local now, but, um, you know, perhaps Singapore to to look at this a little bit more closely and see whether anything can be done to encourage the growth of uh, GameFi, you know, in this part of the world also, uh, and maybe, you know, compete a little bit with some of the other very fast moving jurisdictions like the UAE. Or as I like to say, I hope they don't. <laughs> Vic? Look, I, I want to take a macro view of this. So if you don't build a framework where you are encouraging your community of developers, your GameFi community, um, to work within that framework what you effectively um, encourage is um, the international offshoring um, experience, which is, oh, let's take all of the mm-hmm. things that, you know, might trigger the ire or are completely um, uh, impossible to produce uh, the compliance requirements for. Let's offshore all of those and, you know, keep small parts 
of what we can do within the regulatory perimeter of what's being set for us. Um, I think that that would be very sad. And I think that would be very sad. Of all the good work done. It entirely defeats the purpose. Games are international environments with players from many jurisdictions from around the world. You're creating you're creating an environment in which you want people to um, have a, a, a fair playing ground. You, you don't solve anything by having a, a highly restrictive um, uh, regulatory framework within which you want uh, your game fire community to build into. Um, there needs to be a degree of flexibility. There needs to be some time in which a game can actually build to um, the requirements um, set by that regulatory paradigm. For example, projects are really great at um, addressing, say, some of the technology risk. We do multiple contract audits. We have uh, exploits and bounties. We do many things to make sure that um, from a tech perspective, we are covered. We are entirely new to the concept of AML risk. Um, it's something that, you know, there are different AML frameworks from around the world. Whether they do include or don't include um, NFTs is variable. So we're entirely new at that. We're entirely new at some other really important elements of producing a trusted um, frame, uh, environment. And we should be given the time to do that, to build into that. And also a degree of, I, I want to be able to speak to my regulator openly about this. I think VARA has done a fantastic job. Um, it's uh, pipped many other jurisdictions that post to create something of value. Uh, we want to participate um, potentially in that value if it works for us. I don't want to adopt a, a notion of externalizing everything that might be worrisome and then bringing only, you know, token elements of our operations yeah. here. We are, this region is important. This region is important now and it will become increasingly so. Um, so we want to participate in this region in a meaningful way and we want to do that with a regulator that is on board for that ride with us. Nice. Couldn't end it on better terms. So with that... <laughs> I'm going to thank our extraordinary guest, Vic Wells, for coming us and teaching us so much about Gamify and uh, hopefully making our audiences sit up a little straighter and pay attention to Dubai because I can't do passive advertisement for Dubai. It sounds like shilling, but when a client does, it's perfectly all right. <laughs> well, thank you. It's always a pleasure to have a chat on the record and off the record. <laughs> Yeah, we'll have we'll have more of those off the record with uh, a few more expletives thrown in. Fantastic having you. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Tech Law Talks is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's tech and data practice, please email techlawtalks at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reedsmith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.